Mormon Matters Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support separate from Mormon Stories Podcast. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. Natasha, I'd love to have you talk. Uh, These guys have been sharing mostly. Let's personalize this a bit more directly to the Mormon community. The reactions that you generally see to the types of things that Bill and Daniel have been talking about, both among heterosexual Mormons as well as homosexual Mormons. Just start helping us get into the side in, inside the head as as so many Mormons these days, you know, encounter what we've just been talking about. Okay, well, I'm going to start off with two bad jokes. And one is that my brain hurts. <laughs> From listening to all that, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I didn't go to medical school. <laughs> so, so I just want anybody else who's out there who their brain hurts, it's, it's okay. This is really good information. <laughs> it just might have to listen to it two or three times or before it all times, really yeah, seeps yeah, in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to try to create a more simplified way of explaining it and put it out there for the general public. It's just taken me a while, but that's been on my mind for a while to just present this information in a way that's easy for people to understand. Okay. Yeah, no, and I think overall, actually, you both did a really good job at that. It's just, it's, it is, it's heavy and it's, it's very precisely, you know, unique to certain professions, you know, to be speaking yeah. in the way you're speaking. And, and so I just want to throw that out there, but and that they've just scratched the surface and that it, it's also that it isn't just one study here or there. You know, I have a lot of times, you know, when I just educate very briefly and just say, you know, this is typical behavior within a normal human spectrum of sexuality. Oftentimes I'll get barraged back by, you know, well, that's just one study or there's nothing, you know, I think what both Dr. Bradshaw and Dr. Parkinson have offered here tonight is is a real good view of how complex these issues are, how well studied and researched they have been now for decades, and that the recommendations that I'll be talking about, which really come from organizations such as the American Psychological Association and SAMHSA and, and um, just really well put together recommendations don't come out of nowhere and don't come from some type of gay agenda, you know, that that type of thinking that there's somehow some type of conspiracy or something uh, that's leading people to think a certain way. Now, this is very well thought out, well researched, well studied by many for decades. And what both doctors have presented here is is extremely relevant to how we go forward within our Mormon culture, our Mormon doctrine, and our Mormon communities. So, okay, so my second bad joke, which really, I don't even know why I'm going to say it, but here we go again, blaming the moms, right? So before it was how I raised my kid. Now it's my uterus. <laughs> Not to mention those genes you gave them. Exactly. So that's partly the dad. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, there's nothing we can do about that. But anyway, yeah. that was just my 
moms have been blamed for a lot of things for a long time. So I just thought I'd throw that into the mix. <laughs> it's a cure for um, semi homosexuality. You don't have kids. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or any other human problem, right? They just yeah. don't have kids. So I think where I'd like to move the conversation a little bit is how does all this information apply to how it will be heard by many within our Mormon communities? And what I have found to be the case is that this type of information usually goes two ways. One is, well, I hear that there's biological reasons why a person might be the way they are, but it's still in the language of atypical. And so therefore, these atypicalities or may not be anybody's fault, but they will be taken care of in the afterlife. And when one, you know, when all the hairs are put back together, right? Like, what's the scripture, right? That says, every hair will be replaced. And, you know, we will be perfected that gay people will then become heterosexual people and become their true whole selves, which, which means in Mormonism many times a heterosexual individual. So that's one way that I see this information being kind of made sense of by, by, by the general public. Another way that it gets made sense is that, and I think more what we're hoping people will decide is that, okay, so whether atypical or not, they're things that are kind of uh, genetically predisposed. They're how people are created. They're part of the creation of Heavenly Father. And therefore, um, this makes me comfortable in accepting this person for who they are. And even after the after we die, that orientation will not change. That's just part of their identity and who they are. And we're going to accept them as such. So those are the two ways that I see most people responding to these types of arguments. And I think what's important about them, and not everybody has quite caught up to this, is that both of those responses require this belief that it is not a choice to be a certain orientation. And I just want to clarify and say this every single time I can, that is also our church's official stance. It hasn't been a stance for long, I would say I need to look it up because I keep on talking about it, but it's like in the last 15 or 20 years that the church has agreed to that, I think, due to much of what has been presented tonight. So you can have this understanding that orientation is not a choice and still believe uh, that it's either something that's going to be fixed or something that's just innate and part of the individual's identity. But I think it's important to say that because I still think that there is a large a uh, number of our population within Mormonism that doesn't even understand that we believe as a church that it is not a choice. And there's still a lot of um, rhetoric and harmful things that are being said to either gay members or their friends and families that is not helpful to that regard. So for that, I would just direct people to the mormonsandgays.org website, which has problematic information on it, but does at least have this information on it, that that is our church's official stance. Awesome. So given all of that, I think that the only thing I would add to the conversation is that we have heard a lot about predispositions. And I think it was Daniel who mentioned, you know, feminists might be angry at some other information or, um, you know, this kind of idea of what 
what we consider feminine, what we consider masculine, and that that is somewhat different when you talk about that from a genetic perspective versus a cultural perspective. And so I just want to throw out there this idea that um, oftentimes what we consider feminine or masculine traits in certain cultures are not necessarily what's considered feminine or masculine traits in others, and that there is a wide degree of um, how people act and behave and that doesn't discount what either Dr. Parkinson or Dr. Bradshaw have been talking about. That's my initial, that's my initial thought. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm going to rely on you and Daniel mostly to, to take us into, you know, here's the theory that I've heard uh, and here, and I want to know if it's research based or something like that. We'll hear a lot of anecdotal evidence and people will say, okay, that satisfies me enough. And I, I'm back in my, my comfortable, safe worldview that, you know, uh, everything works, you know, in Mormon teachings or something like that. And so I, 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 I want to kind of say what's good studies, what aren't good studies on, on a lot of these different questions. And then towards the end of the podcast, I want Daniel to really take us into this other piece that I hear so often in Mormonism, which is, well, this is all about behavior. You know, many people um, don't have a chance to have sex in their life. And, and their, their whole, their whole, the whole line is along the lines that this is only about sexual behavior versus identity. And, you know, just there's so much more to it than just what you do or don't with your genitalia. So, um, that, that's, that's the goal. So I, I, I'd love to have you, um, Natasha say, what are the, what are the theories you've heard or else I'll throw you out a theory and you can talk on it. Which, but which one, what one's come up the most for you in terms of Mormon responses besides the ones you've already mentioned or just, you know, general cultural responses to, causation and therefore curability, et cetera? Well, I think that the ones that just come right off the top of my head are um, obviously something must have happened to harm this person. And that's why they are um, exhibiting these types of, of behaviors or orientations. So whatever that thing is, oftentimes it can be something like um, the uh, the, the person was sexually abused as a child. That's a very common one. Mm-hmm. Uh, other ones can be like uh, the, the father was absent in the life, especially when we're talking about gay men. So the father was absent and the, the, man, the gay man didn't have an opportunity to really bond or be attached to the father figure. And therefore now they have, they, they're kind of reaching those attachment issues through connection with other uh, men and have sexualized that in the process. So that's, that's another thing. Um, along with that, the mother can get blamed as well, that she was too attached. Uh, and so therefore, in a sense, almost effeminated her son. Again, a lot of these theories have more to do, I think, with men than women. But um, they're, they're very much what I was kind of given as a fledgling LDS therapist by organizations such as LDS Family Services, et cetera. And some of the literature that we have written by Mormon uh, therapists back probably in the eighties and nineties. And that still are being cited today. And sure. so, so I want you and Daniel to kind of like say, is there any evidence for this? I, I want you to do your best to be absolutely fair. So just take them one by one and then I'll throw other theories if I think of them. Okay. You. Well, the sexual abuse one um, is definitely, there is no correlation with sexual abuse. 
I think what happens oftentimes is that the numbers of people who have been sexually abused are tremendous anyway. So there's a high likelihood of whether you're straight or gay to have been sexually abused in your life. And, and we and don't. This, what are those numbers? Isn't it like one in three for women, one in five for men, is something like that? That's that's about right. I mean, it it can vary depending on the study and and what is understood about these studies. It's that they're probably both underreported, and the male one in particular because I think it has been more stigmatized to mm-hmm. say as a man that you've been sexually molested or touched or assaulted in some way. And so those numbers remain kind of somewhat fluid. But yes, it's a high percentage of the population. It's like 25 to maybe even as high as 40% of the population has been sexually abused, molested, assaulted, um, whatever you want to call those words. And so it's, it's a tremendous amount of the population. And we don't then go to straight people and say, well, geez, you know, part of why you might be straight is the fact that you've been sexually abused. Uh, that that doesn't even cross anybody's mind to to make that correlation where that has been a correlation made towards towards gay people. But you can you can see though what might have made them think that because of working with people who did undergo a lot of trauma trauma because a certain percentage, probably small, of victims of horrible sexual abuse end up with problems later, one of which some of them perpetrate in a way that resembles how they're abused. Not all or not even most, but there are some who do that. And so that could kind of look like, oh, well, they're doing a homosexual thing because they were had a homosexual thing happen to them. And so if you're putting, you know, uh, rape of a child in the category of a homosexual thing, you know, that is already distorting it, but yes, you know, it is technically might be one male with another male um, or one female with another female that might repeat. So it's highly distorted to think that, but I think that some clinicians could have sort of legitimately believed that based on their experience with some sex offenders. Um, Another point is that being exposed to a high amount of trauma early in life of all kinds of trauma leave people with identity problems and problems kind of recognizing and focusing on their identity and and they have a harder time sort of recognizing what they are or what they feel or what kind of relationships they want with people and they have a huge need for any kind of relationship And so that might sort of also muddy the waters when they're trying to figure out if they're homosexual or not. And so there might be people who wouldn't otherwise experiment with homosexuality who might try out homosexual relationships because they're just not quite able to figure out as easily as the other people where they are and what relationships mean and what's appropriate conduct within a relationship. And then there's another set of people, I would say mostly women in this case, who are abused who were abused to the point where they really legitimately are frightened of any sexual activity with a man because it's triggering and traumatic. And so there's a group of women who you could say basically have a heterosexual orientation, but they're just unable because of this horrible trauma to really have which, by the way, wasn't caused by gay people, but was caused by, you know, 
a pedophile who was likely a heterosexual um, who raped them and they then have a post-traumatic response to any relationships with males and so they're really only able to have any relationship that's really intimate with a female even though they wouldn't necessarily otherwise have a uh, homosexual orientation, but I still think the numbers on those are really small, but they're just the kind of things that clinicians observe here and there, and so they describe them and they generalize them, and that might have happened to create these myths that the that it was the cause of homosexuality in a global way. So, Natasha, has there been any studies that, actual studies versus hypothesizing that that confirm any of these uh, ideas that trauma, for instance, causes hom- uh, homosexuality? Yes, there have been, although, Dan, I'm not sure I could cite them at this point. I mean, Daniel, would you know of studies that you could cite? I just don't think there is a, a lot of evidence that there's a higher rate of homosexuality in sexual abuse victims. I'm just saying that there's probably a lot of anecdotes so don't be i'm guessing they don't even become that statistically significant but those are the things that you know we still right. so, might have happened enough that we you know that a lot of clinicians have get that experience described to them but it's not really that they're going from being heterosexual to homosexual if you look at the way i conceptualize what a sexual orientation is it's just that this outcome might create a scenario where a person might behave in a way that's homosexual um, based on this in a very small number of cases. So I'm just not totally... Right. And, and what I would add to that is that there are many heterosexual people who also act in many of the similar ways that, Dan, that Daniel has been talking about um, that get diagnosed with um, things like borderline personality disorder or you know, they get diagnosed with all kinds of things that really actually are probably more PTSD symptoms um, because of sexual trauma and the role that that's played in their life. And so that happens all the time again with heterosexuals. But again, that correlation wouldn't have been made because we're not, we're not seeing heterosexuality as, as something that's atypical, right? And so and I, and I do agree that the research has shown that and I believe this is a factual statement that homosexual people, there's no like greater rate that they've been sexually abused at than homosexual people. Right. So that's where that falls apart. Let me, let me pipe in with a reference. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to butt in. Let me pipe in with a reference. So it's Wilson and Widom archives of sexual behavior in 2010 these investigators followed people for 30 years and have clear evidence of the lack of sexual abuse uh, or physical abuse or neglect in childhood as being a causative factor. Thank you. Good. And that's pretty recent. Yes. Good. Okay. Um, right. Are you ready to take on another one of the like anecdotal or, you know, I can sleep at night without having to wrestle with this question one because here's an easy answer that I have. Well, are we going to talk about the overbearing mother, distant father, which is so boring, I'm tired of it, but we have to mention it every time. <laughs> uh, either one of you. Natasha, do you want to do that one or Daniel? I just know that that hasn't, that hasn't panned out in the research either. So that's just not something that, has panned out as a, as a causation. I mean, would you have anything to add to that? 
Well, let's just say this is based on ideas of psychoanalytic theory that no clinician in our country even believes in anymore. We've moved on from these, you know, Freud was brilliant. He developed some great ideas, but we've learned about him. We've adjusted them. And this Oedipus complex thing and all this kind of stuff, we just left behind. And so this is the only realm where anyone sort of tries to hang on to these kind of theories that um, that it's about an unresolved Oedipal thing and and that's where it all comes out of, and it's just—it's a dying art. It's a question that went out a generation ago, yeah, so I mean, nobody buys that. There's no evidence of it. There's no. There's not even. You know, you can't even talk to a group of homosexual people and get find it, anybody where that really fits. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a few people where that fits, and straight or gay, but it's just. And that all these homosexual people have brothers and sisters who have the same parents. Same parents yes. Exactly. It's so it's just nobody buys it. Right, and that goes back to the sexual terms. abuse statistics too. That if if sexual abuse was a was a factor, we'd actually have a lot more homosexual people because, mm-hmm. like I said, the 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 statistics on sexual abuse are so much higher than what we see statistically as far as a homosexual population. Um, yeah, and I would just add that, I mean, family dynamics obviously affect us, and all of us are, are affected by our family dynamics, but sexual orientation is not one of those factors that seems to be affected by family dynamics. How you have your relationships, yes, that <laughs> that does be- become affected by your family dynamics, but who you have the relationship with, not so much. But I would point out that they were intelligent ideas when someone invented them, and you could kind of think, well, that's plausible, right? And so that's why they stuck around so long. However, we did a ton of observations and research, and none of it panned out. So we moved on to some better theories. And those are the theories we left behind because the evidence just never supported it. And this is basically a problem in all of the field of psychology and psychiatry is that people treated Freud like a god and they couldn't – the general um, institutions and the medical fields didn't think it was necessary to do research. And it was a loss to our society in general. But for some reason, they went almost 100 years basically doing no psychological research except these sideline people like Skinner and who were doing behavioral stuff. And so they were just – but writing Talmuds and Torahs about Freud's writings and developing ideas that weren't based on anything except, you know, like I say, religious belief. And so finally, you know, a generation ago, we brought biology back into psychology and psychiatry. And we just decided to look at things again with evidence. And so this idea that stuck around way too long, it wasn't just homophobia that kept this idea around. It was just really our relationship with, and this adoration of Sigmund Freud that went beyond a scientific thing and kind of got into the realm of religious among the psychiatry community in general for, you know, for two, for two generations, you know, almost a hundred years. Thank you. So, yes, Um, it may be worth mentioning briefly in, in the light of the uh, uh, outcome for the Jonah trial, in New Jersey uh, in early June, there, there's a light, a light has been shown on the notion that one of the causal factors is 
an imperfect gender development. And so in strongly conservative religious communities, including ours, there are programs like People Can Change Journey into Manhood that attempt to assist, especially gay men, in obtaining some restoration of their masculinity through programs that are highly controversial and have received a lot of criticism recently. So perhaps that's another one of these beliefs, unfounded beliefs, I will say, that people in the LDS community encounter as uh, one possible response to their homosexual brothers and sisters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's where I was going to go next as far as the next big kind of thing that gets thrown out is this idea of, well, sexual behavior is something that can be changed or at least repressed, you know, and, and I think you mentioned this, Dan, as far as what's the big deal? It's just your sexuality, right? So why not just repress that and live the rest of your life? And, you know, like you said, lots of people don't necessarily get a chance to have sex in this life, et cetera, et cetera. But that ignores like a huge part of, of self-development and self-identity processes that are incredibly harmful to people who buy into those types of, um, I guess, thoughts and, and try these types of approaches that, that, um, that Brother Bradichaz is talking about. I mean, this is really, I mean, to think about, um, you know, going into one of those programs and, and, you know, you're not enough. So they're going to make you either more masculine or more feminine. And they usually do that in very stereotypical ways that are even harmful in our general culture. And, um, I mean, it's just, it really does, I mean, to, to um, Dr. Parkinson's point, when people have undergone those types of therapies and reparative types of processes, one of the recommendations actually of treatment after that is post-traumatic treatment. So that's how, that's how harmful those types of, I mean, it's not just people up in arms that those types of therapies are happening. It's the effects that have been shown uh, clinically to happen to those people who've undergone those types of therapies. And those are a myriad of things from increased depression, increased anxiety, um, poor self-esteem, poor, you know, big time relational distress, um, suicidality. I mean, it's, it is heavy stuff when you are being told basically that the way you are uh, is just not okay. I mean, imagine any of us being put into a program where parts of our personality were being attacked and told that those needed to change parts of us that just are intrinsically us. And so, um, it's just incredibly harmful, this idea that we can change our orientation or that it's just about sex. That is one of the biggest lies and myths of this whole story because it isn't just about sex. Your sex, I mean, that's kind of like straight privilege. And what I mean by that is that those of us who are straight, we don't really have to think much about it or even wonder how many aspects of our personality and identity and relationships that affects it affects so much of how we perceive ourselves that we don't even think about it. We just take it for granted. So it is not just about sex. If it was just about sex, then many people could probably coexist in 
mixed uh, orientation marriages that haven't because it isn't just about that. It's about their entire identities. Um, I mean, people coexist in marriages that are poor, even heterosexually, right? So, I mean, people can exist in, in bad marriages or, or less than ideal marriages, but this is not about a sexual act. This is about who you are, how you perceive yourself, how you see the world. And, and for a lot of especially Mormon people that they've been told since a very early age, even if it's indirectly, and that's what I think um, we want to talk about too, is how these policies affect not just adults or even children of adults, it affects our adolescents who are hearing these policies and who may be gay themselves and then wondering, okay, it just keeps on feeding that rhetoric that something is intrinsically wrong with me. I don't get to have the same type of experiences that other people get to have. And it's not because of some accident that kept me paralyzed, which even those people have sexuality, believe it or not. There's great, there's great tools to be sexual when you're disabled in some way. Um, it's not the same as saying you're intrinsically broken and there's something wrong with you and we're going to keep you from having a normal, um, developmentally appropriate relational life. You need to use this wheelchair. You can perfectly walk. You can even fly, but you're not allowed to. That's kind of what it is. Um, but I wanted to comment a little bit about um, this dynamic of the reparative therapy and the relationship the church has had to it. Please. And the, and the mixed orientation marriage phenomena. Um, the church for, you know, for a long time has refused to acknowledge that gay is a thing, right? They, they don't want to use that word. Um, it's same-sex attraction. It's, it's not an identity. It's same-sex attraction. It's not an identity. But what the effect that it has had besides, well, one of the worst effects that it has had is an erasure of bisexuality as being sort of a different phenomena than homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And as we know, there's, for you know, for everyone who considers themselves really totally gay, there's another person who considers themselves bisexual, or that's their experience. So, and in women, it's even higher. There's um, way more bisexual women than strictly homosexual women. Um, but in the church experience, you know, in a, you know, in a hundred years of severe repression of homosexuals, you know, you have everybody you know, is considered the same thing, same-sex attracted, right? There's only one category, people who suffer from same-sex attraction. So what we have is gay people and bisexual people who have a very different, you know, and even if you just take the gay people, they're still very different in how they are and how they manifest and what their attractions, their aversions are, what their capacities are, very different. So I don't even like to call it homosexual or bisexual, I like to say people who are capable of having a successful opposite sex marriage and people who aren't, you know. So there's two categories. People who can have an opposite sex marriage, heterosexual marriage and make it work and people who can't, okay. Well, in the church over a hundred years, you have the people who can and people who can't. You have a middle group, people who try and fail. You have another group, people who just can't even stand the idea, and then you have those who kind of it may, might not have been their first choice, but they can do it and they can succeed and they can go on. Well, 
guess which ones stay in the church? The ones who can make an opposite sex marriage work. And so these are the people who dominate the you know the you case change, studies. Yeah. No, they if if you're a stake president, if you're a bishop, and who are you most likely to come across? Well, the other ones got thrown out a long right, time ago. And these are the ones that are here. In fact, some, a lot of them are highly – Yeah, and a lot of these ones who stayed might be highly religious and highly involved and a lot of them become leaders themselves. And so, you know, so it's not their fault, but they're sort of kind of established that, oh, yeah, it worked for me. I, I prayed the gay away. I'm married as a cure for my homosexuality, and it worked. Look, I have a wonderful family. I'm the bishop of my ward. I'm the stake president. I'm an apostle. Or who knows, you know? And so this is the – these are the anecdotes that are available to the Mormon hierarchy, and all these other narratives – are erased because they're kicked out and their people have failed and they fell because it's their own fault because they listened to Satan or whatever. But they were just – it wasn't really looked at the possibility, well, they fell because they actually have an orientation that makes it impossible for them to make a opposite-sex relationship work or else they just – and they just couldn't live with celibacy but celibacy was never really a nice option for mormons you know we're not catholics where the celibates become the leaders of the church no we're mormons where people who are celibate are almost as ostracized as the gay people who are kicked out right so it's not like this delightful option the only real option to sort of have a normal mormon experience is to enter a marriage right a heteros uh, mixed orientation marriage well, and the celibacy rhetoric really leads to that original kind of dual choice that I was talking about, which is this idea that it will be fixed in the afterlife. So you just have to be celibate for, you know, the 60 to 90 years you're going to live on this planet, and then it'll be fixed, and you'll be able to find, a, you know, a spiritual partner. But not only do you have to be celibate, but you have to be unsupported. You have to be marginalized in your ward and your families and and suspect at that. And so it's not just, you know, the celibacy oh, sure. experience is not particularly supported. It's just prescribed. Nice. Um, there is zero support for it. They're just not given, you know, the perf the most ideal person to be a bishop would be a celibate person, right? They have time. They don't have kids. Um, but no, they're they're not allowed to be anything except maybe the secretary or you know. Um, so it's not it's not really an affirming choice in Mormonism by any means. It's just you know you have to do this thing, which means you're going to be ministering angel and in the celestial kingdom or whatever. You know, it's, it's sort of like a second par sort of thing. So it's not a terribly compelling. Alternative v vision, yeah, for your yeah. vision. The only yeah. one is this mixed orientation marriage. So you just have a lot of people force themselves into it, which you know works for a few and fails for a lot. Yeah. Now, Bill, I know in our pre-conversation, you mentioned a study, one of the six or so papers that have already come out of the research that you and John did together, that had to do with who was able to stay within the church. Do you want to uh, share that a little bit? I will just say about that, that our published study corroborates exactly the model that uh, Daniel just 
uh, described to us. So the research question was what, what variable among the information that we had about our, uh, our respondents, which one predicts the ability uh, of, of a Mormon male to stay affiliated with the church? And what it is not is devotion to the church, basic, basic uh, doctrinal belief. In fact, the, the gay men that we studied uh, were sort of in the blue ribbon contingent of the uh, young men in their wards and stakes. <clears throat> These were the men who, uh, young men who, all the mothers in the ward wished they had as a son. Uh, the level of missionary service, for example, is much higher than for the church at large. So uh, it isn't, as you will hear today in some quarters in support groups for LDS gay people, it is not religiosity. It is, in fact, the position that the person occupies on the Kinsey scale. And you may wish to criticize the Kinsey scale on the basis of its imprecision, which I will grant. But there is evidence in my view, that there is published evidence which I accept that bisexuality is a real phenomenon and that it can be measured uh, empirically. And the people who, the men, this study that I refer to uh, focused exclusively on males. The men who can stay affiliated with the church are those who are in the bisexual range of the continuum. They, they, they can best accommodate mixed orientation marriage. They can remain closeted with respect to the members of their ward. They have some capacity for uh, erotic feelings for both men and women and so they can most easily accommodate to the to the accepted LDS norm. Uh, for anybody who wants to read about that, it's in the most recently uh, published volume of the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Awesome. Thank you very much. Now, I want to ask you, because Natasha kind of started us a little bit on identity, and I wanted Daniel to do identity, and he mentioned pray the gay away and stuff. And Bill, you've been powerful voice in my life. And I've, I've even quoted you a time or two on the podcast in the past about just, I believe it came up in that Q and a or something that you did with John when, when you did the, the one that's on Mormon stories. But one of the reasons that you would risk in many ways to to do these lectures at BYU or something like that, you indicated it's because you know of the faithfulness and the amount of prayer and the amount of study and the amount of anguish that um, so many gay Latter-day Saints go through. What was it that that you mostly didn't want them to believe about themselves? Well, um, we have in our study a very large collection of very personal narratives in which our respondents describe 
their efforts at uh, sexual orientation change. And uh, not only do these include uh, formal efforts with, at the professional level with uh, psychotherapeutic counseling, but uh, more telling even are the efforts that they'd made at a personal level. And in addition to trying to find out as much information as they could about homosexuality, the majority of these people have engaged in efforts that I'll describe as personal righteousness. So in the LDS framework, this means doing everything possible to elicit a blessing from Heavenly Father that would allow a change in their sexual feelings. Um, this, this often begins by saying, I'll go on a mission and I'll be the best missionary that was ever uh, in my mission. And that's what many of them achieved. They come home and face then uh, pressures to marriage, to marry. Uh, these efforts include fasting multiple times a week, going to the temple for uh, multiple sessions, uh, frequent prayer at many, many times during the day, accepting any church calling, uh, doing everything that they had been taught to do in order to merit a blessing from deity. And the consequence of not having any of those efforts result in a change in their sexual feelings has a devastating consequence. So it often results in such a person feeling, well, I must not be good enough for God to bless me. Uh, he has not, I haven't done enough to uh, have him hear me. Uh, there must be something wrong with me that excludes me from God's grace. Uh, and perhaps ultimately, maybe there is no God. And so, as some people describe, I got in my car and drove out to the West Desert with uh, a plan to kill myself. So, um, I will just say um, that having read many, many of these, I have to stop because the spiritual heaviness of the experience of these wonderful people uh, weighs down on me so hard that I have to uh, do something else for a while. I, I would just say that this is a very common experience and needs to be the target of what we attempt to do in the church to prevent such things from happening, including then an understanding of the legitimate reasons for homosexuality and the lifting of the burdens from gay young people and their families. Thank you. Yeah, that, that is so well said and, and so indicative of my experience working with um, members of our church, you know this this scripture of after all that you can do has really come back to bite us in the butt because there's no way to measure that, and you know you can sleep less, you can 
pray more. You can, I mean, there's no measurement that tells you you have done enough. And this doesn't just affect homosexual members of our church. It affects people with depression. It affects people uh, dealing with relational issues. It affects a myriad of sexual issues. Um, but, you know, in particular, the LGBTQ community, this is where it hits so hard and why we see the levels of, um, I guess, re religious devotion to this equational God that we worship within Mormonism. You know, if I do A, B, and C, then I will be blessed by, you know, D, E, and F. That is a very, although it's not scripturally based, for some reason we have really grabbed on to that type of doctrine. And it just does, I mean, it just, it hurts people with dealing with infertility. It hurts people who are dealing with divorce. It hurts people who are dealing with uh, children who seem uncontrollable or drug addicts or it just hurts every single human problem because it just feels like if I would have done more, if I would have um, been a better person, I somehow would have been able to avoid this seeming problem. And, and that's just, you know, I mean, obviously there are some consequences that happen when we behave in certain ways, but for the majority of people, this really comes back to bite you in the butt and, and something that I think we really need to get away from in Mormon culture and, and, take more of this um, stance towards grace because uh, it's really not, it's, it's not really part of, of true doctrine when you look at uh, the types of issues that most scriptural people have had to deal with and that had right. nothing to do with the level of righteousness they were um, right. and, 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 and there's been a whole lot of in the last 15 or 20 years among Latter-day Saint scholars, plenty of them at BYU and stuff that say that whole idea of after all you can do as a temporal after is the wrong reading of scripture. It doesn't match the context. It doesn't match who Nephi seems to be, you know, he seems to be referring in very similar language to his brother Jacob earlier and something that he was saying, and it really should be reading instead of after all you can do to despite all you can do. Even if you did everything, you're still saved by grace. You're still saved by God's, you know, uh, enabling power. Yeah, and, and Dr. Bradshaw, he hit on something that I think is so important, is that we've really, when we espouse these types of, of, this type of rhetoric and the policies that we've seen come out this month, we are really messing with the ability for people to um, connect and relate with the divine. Because if you see the divine through this equational approach, and after all you can do approach, it really does start to hinder your ability to be connected. It, it's not an accepting stance where, you know, God will accept me for who I am, and I will progress and make, you know, mistakes and, and make, um, and have success in my life, and God will um, see me as worthy regardless of, you know, how I move forward in that journey that we all need to journey. And it's really the more this relationship with a God who is continually disappointed with me and continually upset and continue, I'm a continual failure in the eyes of my God. And that's just not a non-sustainable relationship that becomes a toxic relationship, just as it often does in family relationships that it can also happen with the divine. So as he said, many will abandon God altogether, or they'll still believe in God, but continually and chronically feel uh, incapable of feeling the love of the divine. And so this is so harmful at not just a sexual or identity level, but a spiritual level as well. Well, well said. Now, um, Bill, there's one 
piece of language that I picked up from you in the past that didn't quite come out this way. You know, obviously you're making the same point. And, and I'll just go ahead and say it and see if you want to either echo that or say, yeah, that fits me or whatever. But it was, it was along the lines of after so much knocking and so many bloody knuckles and knees worn out and all this bargaining and things like that, the conclusion could be that, you know, I am so depraved, I am so wrong that, you know, the atonement, which is supposed to be able to fix everything, or the, the Christ was able to descend below, and, and there was nothing that couldn't be healed, I'm somehow so depraved that the atonement can't even work on me. Does that still resonate with you? or? Well, I think that's um, exactly true. One of the one of the levels of response uh, that I just alluded to. So it's the failure to find acceptance in the church that you love, the failure of heroic efforts to change lead to a loss of feelings of self-worth and self-esteem a loss of feeling of loyalty to the church, and now the point you make, uh, a loss of access to the atonement of the Savior. Um, and what, what is helpful for many is then a, a, a change in prayer. It's not, Heavenly Father, help me be different than I am, please take this away from me. It's uh, acceptance. Uh, I am a a gay person. I did not choose this. This is, uh, I I will learn to accept as authentic the person that I am. And then I will uh, attempt to choose the path in life that will bring me the greatest happiness and the, and, the, and the greatest opportunity for service. And often, although not always, uh, so people who make this change in expectation uh, find those opportunities for love and service in living a Mormon life outside the walls of Mormonism. Meaning uh, a married life, uh, a moral upstanding life? Always a moral upstanding life, often in a committed same-sex relationship. I, I think that for many, if not, certainly not all, but for many, they don't they don't lose their Mormonisms in their outlook about what constitutes a moral and a fulfilling life. And they can do it in a number of different ways that uh, we will find uh, commendable and acceptable. Thank you. Well, and what a, what a tragedy that, that we don't make space for that within our communities. And what a, what a tragedy. Um, that we don't make space for that in our wards and stakes and, you know, in our general church. Cause it's, it's the LGBTQ community that suffers so much to get to the point that he's describing. And then it's, it's us who lose out on some of the best people we have. Yes. Beautiful. Well said. 
Um, I'd like to, I don't know if this is a good time, but I'd like to bring up a huge topic of conversation that kind of flows out of this, which is what is the biggest damage being done? And we're, we're talking a lot about, you know, the harmful effects this has on gay people. But um, I think that any discussion of this deserves a large focus on the impact on our teens because this impact um, is really has repercussions throughout the life cycle. So um, the damage that's done, you know, between the ages of 12 and 18 is a damage that, you know, keeps on giving um, in the worst way possible. And I want to start by saying that um, the church, you know, when I told you they erased bisexuals, they also erase by calling a same-sex attracted gay youth. Um, they just never and still don't acknowledge that these people exist and therefore have taken no responsibility to save their lives or to offer them anything at all in our church. And um, so as Natasha said, they're getting messages from a very vulnerable age that they don't belong in this religion, that they don't belong in heaven, that they are the worst thing, that they're worse than murderers. Every week in church, they're getting terrible messages about themselves. They go to church and they learn that the only possible good thing to do is get married and have children, but they just know that they can't do that or they'll never want to or this just crushes their dreams they have. And and so this is a very alienating idea too. So they just over week after week, eternal marriage, temple marriage, and they're just nothing for them. They're excluded. They know they're excluded. They can't talk about it. They can't tell anybody that they're in this place because they don't want to be ostracized on top of it. So there's this damage going on every week at church just to their self-esteem, just in the lack of anything offered at church, but on top of that, just how demonized gay people are. Every time we talk about how horrible same-sex marriage is, every time that they're called an apostate as they are now, this is impacting them personally and crushing them as far as their place in the church. You add onto this, the really bigger problem is that they're going to face rejection by their families. Um, we, you know, when we talk about research, some incredibly important research has been done by Family Acceptance Project, and it's just showed what the real risk factors are for suicide, as well as dangerous behaviors such as drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and unsafe sexual practices, including that lead to HIV infection. And this research just showed us why LGBT people have, especially youth, have a exponentially higher rate of suicide, both attempts and successes. And it's because there is an exponential correlation between family rejection and the family rejection that leads to an increased risk of suicide, which is an eightfold increase of risk, is basically a checklist of things that they're taught to do in their Mormon faith, um, which is to not let them identify themselves, to not let them to, you know, correct any 
gender, you know, what they perceive as gender incorrect behavior, to not allow them to have gay friends, to demonize gay people in front of them and talk badly about them, to say things like they deserve to be, you know, that AIDS was a punishment for them, to say that anyone who's same-sex married is apostate. These are all things that are in that list of rejecting behaviors. And those rejecting behaviors have been shown to increase by eightfold the suicide risk and a similar increased risk for dangerous behaviors like HIV and drug addiction. And we're not talking about just teen suicide. This risk is a lifelong risk. They remain for the rest of their life at higher risk of all of those risk factors as young adults. So the suicides we're seeing of young adults and adults are sequelae of these traumas that they have as young people. And as Dr. Bradshaw pointed out, the the rift between them and their religious beliefs has implications as well because the the gay typical gay and lesbian teen feels marginalized and ostracized from their religion and they give it up they leave but unfortunately they leave without any preparation the church doesn't give them anything they can take with them the church yeah, there's the word of wisdom, but they mix it all up with with things that end up being thrown out. Because what does what does the word of wisdom need to teach these kids? They need to teach themselves. You need to love yourself enough not to use drugs. But if the word of wisdom is obsessing about coffee and tea, that's hard for a gay person who left the church or any ch- any teen who leaves the church, it's hard for them to know what to do with the word of wisdom. Well, I'm not supposed to drink coffee and tea, but coffee and tea is fine. So obviously the word of wisdom is useless, but unfortunately the word of wisdom is very useful for anybody. We should not use drugs. We should not do unhealthy things. And if People have to understand that there's reasons to not use drugs besides the fact that the word of wisdom says not to. But the gay people who leave, they, they miss that. They miss the – they no longer have a connection as to why it might not be a great thing to be promiscuous or to protect yourself sexually. And, and so all of these dangers, a place where they could really use the church and the structure – and it's not just gay people. This happens to any youth who leaves the church – but you add on top of that this injuries to their self-esteem that happened and the marginalization they got. And then the third insult is how the community treats them. And this is particularly strong in Utah. And this, if you read the article today um, in the Salt Lake Tribune about how um, a one of the someone from the Allred family who tried to leave the polygamous culture and they moved into a Mormon community – um, they were ostracized. They weren't even allowed to become part of the church, even though they tried to. And then they established a pattern of bullying that was that the community, the kids were just picking up on the messages from their parents. And so when we call every same-sex couple apostate and not allow their kids to enter the church, it's creating an atmosphere in these highly Mormon communities in Utah that 
we just need to shun gay people. We need to shun gay teens. We need to shun children of gay people. We need to shun them all. And not every Mormon's going to get that message, but a lot are. And so that's just one more insult that adds to the family rejection. It adds to the rejection they feel at church. They're also getting it in their Mormon communities, which happens to be where they go to school, where they live. And so we just have these huge insults. And the if anyone really thinks that suicide isn't a problem among LGBT teens, they are not talking to them. We don't have data because the state hasn't allowed us to really get any decent data. But everyone who works in mental health with these teens or these young adults, everyone who works in activism, we talk to people and we're just swamped with the amount of people who are suicidal, who have been suicidal, who have attempted suicide. Um, I talked to two LGBT teens today who participate in a Facebook group for Mormon LGBT teens. I asked them how many of, you know, in your estimation, how many of the kids in that group have been suicidal? And they go, oh, well, not all of them, maybe like 80 or 90%. Now, do, would we feel good about if we went to the average ward, gathered all the youth, and 90% of them had been having suicidal thoughts. I mean, this is not acceptable, and we can't just say, oh, well, it's not a problem. And if we say it's not a problem, then we're ignoring the hundreds of LGBT youth who are on the streets and canyons on the Wasatch Front because they were kicked out of their homes at a rate that's way, way higher than, than their non-gay teens. There's just a grossly disproportionate number, and this is you know, a national problem, but it's particularly a problem in Utah. And the people who work with these teens have observed it, that it's the Mormon kids getting kicked out on the street. By and parents who are doing it for righteousness' love. sake. or yeah. yeah, and it's still happening. And... You know, granted, there's other problems that go along with, you know, when you have that low self-esteem, you might have other behavior problems, but it's getting them kicked out specifically and not their, their peers. And, so to, and we know that this kind of rejection is a huge risk for suicide and danger behavior, not just for the kids who end up getting kicked out, but a lot of kids who are maybe not kicked out, but they're really re- – getting rejecting messages even though they're not kicked out. And so to say it isn't a problem is just really, really ignoring this huge bloodbath, basically, that that the our church community is choosing to ignore and our church leaders are choosing to ignore. They are simply choosing not to minister to this very, very needy group that doesn't even have to be needy. I mean, there's communities out there that doesn't have homophobia. Montreal has the gay men in Montreal have a higher mental health, better mental health outcomes than straight men because there's not homophobia there. They, they, um, it's shown And they that, probably had to do more inner work to be healthy, you know. Well, no, it's just, it's just normal. I mean, Montreal, the homophobia was... You know, basically, you know, functionally eliminated a generation ago. So now there's a new generation of people who just 
had an experience where, you know, the homophobia was so light. I mean, it's still there, but it, it just didn't affect their mental health. And so what do we have? We don't have a higher rate of suicide with their gay, you know, with the gay community. We don't have lower mental health outcomes. We have, you know, for some reason, I'm not sure, the, you know, the straight men in Quebec culture have more mental health problems than gay men or than women. Um, and... But that just indicates an example that it's not intrinsic to being gay. It's intrinsic to where what the gay people, how they're treated and what they're exposed to. And we've got this tragedy. People have blood on their hands. Our church leaders, I have to say, they have blood on their hands because they have chosen to ignore it. And they have chosen not to minister to this group. And they have chosen to not take into account the realities of what these people face and regardless of what the theology is behind it even if we don't change our beliefs around that we are not ministering to these people we are not helping them with the best options we're basically telling them you know if same-sex married people are more apostate than promiscuous people we're already saying it's worse to be monogamously gay than promiscuously gay. I mean, this is a bizarre message we're sending. Yes. We're telling people, you know, that if they want to join our church, they might be married, they might have children, that they have to, you know, if we, have, if we had a gay parent with children who suddenly the Spirit told them they have to join the church, well, they would have to both leave their spouse, but they would have to leave children, right? And hopefully none of them would, but it's this bizarre message that you should get divorced and abandon your children, and that would be better. That would be more righteous so that you could get baptized. Now, this is, this is the underlying message, and they're not taking into account how that's affecting the mind of a gay teen, right? And how that's impacting how they're going to behave as adults. Um, you know, I'll, I have to say, you know, I know a lot of gay people and they come out of the experience amazingly and they come out as incredibly moral people. But, but there's a lot of casualties along the way and there's a lot of damage and there's a lot of suffering and it's unnecessary and there's a lot of deaths and there's a lot of grieving families and there's a lot of divided families. And there's a lot of parents who did what they were told to do by their church and now they have a dead child. And they just don't know what to do with that. And they, we just hear about them right and left. And we, we, you know, this is why I'm here. I didn't come to this out of a strong belief in Mormonism. I came to this out of a strong concern for a community that I was raised in and some people who I see are, are really, really hurting to the point where they are killing themselves. And, and it may be anecdotal, but I've talked to a lot of gay people and I've asked this frequently and I say, you know, how many gay Mormons do you know who have killed themselves? And virtually everyone knows a few to a several. I mean, how many friends do each of you have who've actually killed themselves? Well, if you talk to a gay Mormon, they all know people 
who were gay who killed themselves, and a lot of them know several, and and this is not, just not a common thing for a Mormon. To, we might you know, have some distant acquaintance who kill themselves, but it's not so common that we all have, you know, a few close friends. So that may be anecdotal, but it's got us convinced because of how many people we work with and talk to and just see how prevalent it is and such a ubiquitous seeing the suicidality and how many of them attempted and then just knowing of so many people who actually succeed and then anyone who's sort of part of a gay community in Utah just actually having friends and who, you know, more than one who have killed themselves. It's it's a real problem. Undeniable. Thank you so much. Well, yeah. I want to, can I piggyback on some of what he's saying? Because, um, I, I mean, I agree with everything he's just said. And, and I think it's absolutely atrocious that we're in the situation we are. Because, I mean, the rhetoric, you know, against homosexuals, has always been present in our church, but the last twenty years since the family proclamation came out and since we've going we've been making kind of political moves against gay marriage in Hawaii and then California, I mean, the rhetoric has increased exponentially. I mean I don't remember as a teen hearing half even two thirds of the messages against homosexuality that that we're hearing now, and so the as the church has retrenched in their position it has become almost like a weekly thing that you hear about in church meetings. Whereas when I was growing up, we kind of knew homosexuality was frowned upon, but it wasn't something we were talking about as often. And I just want to point out um, the ACE study, A-C-E, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences study that has come out recently. And it's a great resource for understanding um, kind of, childhood adverse problems that happen and the impact that they have on the health, not just mental health, but even physical health of adults for, I mean, these are long lasting effects. And depending on how many adverse um, things you've had happen to you as a child, the worse it becomes as far as the effects it's going to have on your entire life. And so when Dan, Daniel says um, the church has blood on their hands or that they're responsible for not ministering, amen. I mean, this is not just a doctrinal position. This has life-lasting effects that are really problematic. And I call out what we are doing as emotional and sexual abuse of our youth. That is what we are doing. And so when you have chronic emotional and sexual abuse through these types of teachings that affect your development, it has long-lasting effects. And it's not just as simple as saying, oh, they, they no longer believe in Mormonism, so they don't believe in the word of wisdom. I mean, it's more than that. People need ways to self-medicate and cope. And drugs and alcohol are highly effective ways to self-medicate when you don't have any resources in your life. Uh, having promiscuous sex is a great way to self-medicate when you don't have any resources in your life. I mean, risk-taking behaviors, cutting yourself, uh, becoming suicidal, these are not, in a sense, dysfunctional things. They are things that are helping that person at the present time because they have no other resources in their life. Those are actions that actually make sense, even though to most of us, they would seem as maladaptive. They're actually very adaptive things. When people come in and do therapy with me, this is one of 
the things I talk about. It's like instead of looking at that behavior as something that you did wrong, I think it might be more helpful to look at that behavior as something that helped you survive for a time. It may not be healthy for you to continue in that behavior, but you were needing something because you had nothing and you needed to survive. And so we really need to look at these issues kind of more from that perspective of what happens when not just a family, but a community isolates and rejects, um, you know, an entire population at the level that we've been doing. And these policies just exacerbate. I mean, they don't, they're not new things. They just make worse what was already bad to begin with. And so um, I think I heard you on some other podcast, Daniel, where you talked about, it's not that we need to uh, that we're calling for these policies to be abolished. It's that these policies are a ridiculous exacerbation of something that should have been abolished a long time ago to begin with. And that even if these policies were taken away tomorrow, the underlying issue still remains, which is the continual rejection and emotional and sexual abuse of our LGBTQ population. To, to reinforce what has just been said, uh, I invite our listeners to access the Family Acceptance Project at San Francisco State University, the work of Caitlin Ryan, and uh, especially relevant is the pamphlet she co-wrote with Bob Reese, uh, which is targeted specifically to LDS families about the importance of uh, acceptance and the harmful effects of family rejection. Thank you. And I'll link to that bill because people can download it for free. And I will add to that, that also SAMHSA has come out with a report um, against particularly conversion therapy that you should also link to. And Caitlin Ryan's work was also, I mean, Caitlin Ryan played a part with many other professionals um, in coming up with the information in there where much of this information is also covered. And it talks about, um, how, you know, what you should be looking for as far as good therapists that can help in these types of situations, what you should be looking for um, as far as resources as a family or an individual going through some of the issues that we're discussing. And so I think that would be another good resource as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Matters Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. To keep this podcast alive, or to join our support community, please consider a tax-deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org. Music for this podcast was brought to you by Brittany and Clayton Pixton. The Mormon Matters logo was generously provided by studiocase.com. Thank you for listening. Enjoy.